Welcome to your go-to source for entertainment. Wait for it? Gaming? Wait for it? Anime? Plus Ultra! Mr. Eric Almighty and Phil the Filipino? Yeah, they've got you covered. And all you gotta do is wait for it. This is the Wait For It Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Wait For It Podcast and welcome to the May edition of Filuminati. I'm your co-host Phil Smith, aka Phil the Filipino. Hope you guys are enjoying the month of May so far and all the content we have put out, not only on the podcast, but over on our social media pages, such as Instagram and TikTok. For those of you that are brand new to the podcast, or if you need a little bit of a refresher, Filuminati is an episode in which I will find various fan theories from all over the internet and present them to you for your listening pleasure. I've had a lot of fun with this series in the past. I've gotten some really good feedback, also gotten some uh, less than positive feedback when it comes to some of the theories that are presented on this show. Remember, these are not theories that we have thought of here at the podcast. These are theories that other people have uh, put out there on the internet, and I am just presenting them to you uh, in podcast form. So if you have issue with said theory, then sure, I definitely would love to have a discussion about it, but don't attack me uh, just because you don't read or you can't read. I don't know what it is. I just attacked you there. You know what? I'm sorry. I apologize. We'll keep it civil uh, until it is that is some of you run your mouth um, you know, without uh, looking at the context. But anyway, th- see, this is why Eric doesn't allow me to run the social media pages. Anyway, I got some fo- <laughs> got some really fun theories for you guys here this month. I went with video game theories for the theme. Now, there is one of them that is actually more so of a movie, but it's a movie pertaining a board game. Uh, you guys may be able to guess it just based off of that information. But for the most part, these are all fan theories about video games. Again, thank you to any new listeners that are tuning in. And also, welcome back to all you returning listeners. We truly could not do this without you. But let's go ahead and jump right into it here with a Pokemon theory. Now, this is from the Reddit Fan Theories page from a user named Vexelius, I believe. Um, It states that the Pikachu you encounter in Viridian Forest are the victims of a pet craze. And this is specifically pertaining to Generation 1. While playing the Gen 1 Pokemon games, Red and Blue, I always thought that finding a Pikachu in Viridian Forest was an extremely lucky event. You could spend hours without even finding one, only to KO it accidentally or run out of Pokeballs and having to repeat everything all over again. But lately, it's come to my mind that they seem a little out of place. Viridian Forest is home to the evolutionary line of Caterpie and Weedle. Makes perfect sense as they are bug-type Pokemon. And it's clearly established that this was intended to mirror the real-world hobby of bug catching. Pidgeys also make an appearance here, which is easy to understand since it's implied they eat bugs. There's a logical relationship between those species in the forest, but in the case of Pikachus, they just don't seem to be native to the place. According to Bulbapedia and several strategy guides, you only have about a 5% chance to find one in Viridian Forest. Their quote-unquote natural habitat seems to be the abandoned power plant where you have a 25% chance of encountering them. Also, this is located far, far away from any forest in the game. I think that they are an invasive species brought to Viridian Forest by humans. Not only brought, they were intentionally abandoned there. As the map's description says, it's quote, a natural maze. Many people become lost inside. Seems like the perfect place to abandon a pet while making sure it won't be able to find its way back to your home. 
maybe sometime prior to the events of the game, there was a TV show, event, or video game featuring a Pikachu, which sparked the kid's interest to have one as a pet. You can even see a girl asking her dad for a Pikachu in the Science Museum of Pewter City, one of the cities bordering Viridian Forest. So for a little while, this Pokemon was sought by a lot of adults wanting to please their kids. But as time went by, the kids found new interests, different hobbies, and new fads, so they stopped taking care of their once-beloved Pikachus. And here's the interesting thing. In a world depicted through these games, there are two main things that you can do when you don't want a Pokemon anymore. Leave it in the PC box system or release it into the wild. And it seems that a lot of adults and kids went through this route. Of course, just as their real-world counterparts, they didn't do the research, so they just found the nearest, most convenient spot to release them, which in this case was Viridian Forest. I'm a little torn from this one. You know, some people are pointing out, you know, that Pikachu is a mouse and they would be snacking on bugs, um, but also mice are pretty abundant in forests, so it would make sense for Pikachu to be hanging out in a forest. Some people are pointing out the statement about their natural habitat being close to the abandoned power plant, uh, that being them more so drawn to that area by the electricity, not necessarily that they were there already. Some people are even going as far as pointing out that when a Pikachu hatches, they're level 5, and a lot of the Pikachu you see in that area are pretty low level, between level 2 and 4. I don't know if that's true. I believe I've caught like a level 5 Pikachu in that forest. Um, again, it's been a long time since I've played those games. The reason that I think this has the most plausibility for me is just because I do live in Florida, and we have such a huge invasive species problem. Now in Florida, it's less cute little rats and more so giant pythons and boa constrictors and iguanas and things like that but listen i've talked about pokemon in the past was with like the great war theory you know there i think that pokemon mirrors the real world a lot more than we are aware of so you know what i give this one relative plausibility but again it could just be an opportunity to catch a rare pokemon early in the game let's move into one that's a little bit more difficult for me to talk about just because of the heartbreak that it caused and that is the Mass Effect series. We haven't done a Game Room episode on the Mass Effect series yet. I, I definitely want to tackle that down the line. Uh, Mass Effect 2 is to date probably one of... It's definitely top 10, maybe top 5, one of the best games I've ever played. And for those of you that have played through you know, Mass Effect 3, you know what I'm talking about. You know, and then <laughs> the disaster that was Mass Effect Andromeda. I'll say this right out of the gate. Bioware has already shot this theory down multiple times. Uh, but considering how shit the ending is, I think they should just step aside and kind of let us run with whatever we want to run with to make your subpar game a little bit better. Um, <laughs> so let's go with this one. This is the indoctrination theory. Now, this is from a Strida article. Now, Mass Effect is an all-time great series with amazing characters and a spectacular sci-fi story. Throughout the three games, Mass Effect built up this incredible lore about multiple alien civilizations and how they interact with each other. As we follow Commander Shepard through his journey from accidentally finding an alien beacon on Eden Prime to personally facing the universe-ending threat itself, the looming presence of the Reapers is always there. As the story with Shepard versus the Reapers came to a conclusion, fans were mostly disappointed. The different endings the finale offered to the entire series were a bit too similar, implying that players' choices throughout the trilogy meant very little in the end. Disgruntled fans were quick to develop a theory that makes the final stretch of Mass Effect 3 much more complex and interesting than its original ending. If you've been a fan of the series, you have surely heard this name before. What's the indoctrination theory? The Reapers are the main antagonists of the Mass Effect series. They are a civilization of ancient, highly advanced, sentient starships. 
They claim to have no beginning and no end, pointing out that they are incomprehensibly old. They hibernate in dark space, waking up to harvest all organic life from the galaxy approximately every 50,000 years. It's a cycle that's been going on for an unknown amount of time, and as luck would have it, one of those cycles coincides with Shepard's time in the big leagues. The Reapers very quickly recognize Shepard as a great leader and consider him a threat to their cycle of extinction. The Reapers are correct in their assessment as Shepard proves to be incredibly resilient, killing one of the prominent Reapers and even coming back from certain death. Throughout the Mass Effect trilogy, the Reapers are shown to have the power to dominate an organic being's mind completely and change their personality to act according to their own agenda. This is called the Indoctrination, and it's a key plot device during the first game. The Indoctrination theory suggests that during the final charge towards the Reapers on Earth, the Reaper named Harbinger attempted to indoctrinate Shepard as a last-ditch effort. Everything that happens after that is in Shepard's mind. Admiral Anderson represents his human side, a father-like figure to Shepard, and Harbinger's attempts on his mind are represented by the Elusive Man. The Elusive Man tries to convince Shepard to give up the fight and embrace the Reapers for absolute control over them. At the same time, Anderson actively points out the indoctrination taking over the Elusive Man. After Shepard manages to move past this conflict, he's presented with three choices. To destroy the Reapers, to embrace and control them, and to synthesize a new life form by combining the synthetics and organics into a new, unique DNA. According to the theory, these choices are also happening in Shepard's mind. Shepard's comment towards the embrace option is, quote, so the elusive man was right all along, which implies choosing that option is what the Reapers want. Everything Shepard learns in the final sequence seems to convince him not to pick the destroy the Reapers route. He's told that there are much better and viable solutions that will end up with Shepard changing his mind about destroying the Reapers. Interestingly, though, when he contemplates the option to destroy the Reapers, he sees a vision of Anderson, his human side, shooting the mechanism to trigger the destruction of the Reapers. What moves this theory forward is the part most players were also disgruntled with. All three choices end up playing the same cutscene, just with different colors. Red for destroy, blue for control, and green for synthesis. There's only one exception to this, a cutscene that plays after you choose the destroy option, it shows just for a moment that Commander Shepard is alive under the wreckage of the final charge, implying he resisted the indoctrination of Harbinger by choosing to destroy the Reapers. This theory is considered vital because it makes the final moments of the trilogy much more complex and nuanced compared to just having three different colored cutscenes. The problem with the original ending is that it basically throws away all the choices you made throughout the trilogy and wants you to pick one of the colors. The indoctrination theory adds much more weight to your choices during the confrontation with the elusive man and makes your final choice much more meaningful in terms of the storytelling. Like I said, Bioware has debunked this theory multiple times, but it's still a strong contender for best video game fan theory of all time due to having a layered and meaningful structure. It looks at the whole ending from a different perspective and actually works for the most part, so you can consider it headcanon if you're invested in it. Again, I think Bioware should just sit this one out, uh, considering the last few years that they have had. And if anything is going to make the ending at least a little bit better, then they should just roll with it. Um, Shepard is is one of the most layered and complex video game characters that I have ever come across. And to think that, you know, playing through hours and hours of a game came down to just three choices and it ultimately didn't matter is really upsetting. And if this is something that's going to help people cope or at least, you know, come to terms with how bad the ending was, then you know what? I say that we roll with it. What did you guys think? How many of y'all played Mass Effect, though? Let me know what you guys thought about that ending. And and also, if you want an episode about it down the line, because again, I definitely want to revisit it and talk about it. Let's get into the next theory here, and it's for Red Dead Redemption. And this one also does a really good job at fleshing out and revealing more about a character that we already love, which is John Marston. 
And this theory is that Jack isn't really John Marston's son. John Marston, of course, is a playable character in both Red Dead games. His family plays an important role as well, but there's a reason to believe that Jack Marston may not be his biological child. Furthermore, this also explains why many of the members of the Vanderlyn gang took on a fatherly role for Jack. Both games in the Red Dead franchise plant a series of doubts throughout smart moments in the dialogue, as well as important details about the character's backstory. However, what the games do not provide is a concrete answer to Jack's patrilineal lineage. Rather, players are supposed to just be satisfied with the fact that John readily accepts the role of Jack's father, despite the reason he has to doubt paternity. However, before this is accused of being a plot hole, it rather seems like a conscious decision on part of the developer. In order to drive home the fact that it doesn't matter who Jack's biological father is, his real father is John because that's who has raised him. Several times over the course of Red Dead Redemption 2, it's mentioned that John left the gang for a year because he didn't believe Jack was his son. This is believable given that when players are first introduced to Abigail in the first game, she was working as a prostitute. She joined the gang in 1894 and gave birth to Jack in 1895. During her initial few months with the Vanderlyn, she had sexual relationships with several gang members. Since this was around the time she fell pregnant, it means anyone could technically be Jack's biological father. Dutch confirms this in the original Red Dead, where he says about John, quote, we all had her, but he married her, end quote. This implies that Abigail likely had relations with Dutch Vanderlyn and other members like Javier Escuela, Bill Williamson, and possibly even Arthur Morgan. Even more in Red Dead Redemption 2, Arthur subtly hints that he doubts John is Jack's real father, quote, you don't look like a Marston, maybe a Williamson or an Escuela, he says to the boy, even though Jack didn't seem to understand the meaning behind it. Some theories have even popped up online, suggesting that Jack looks similar to several of the gang members in his adult years, particularly Javier, though it's only speculation. The Red Dead Redemption franchise ultimately leaves up to players to decide if the evidence speaks for itself, and as such, whether Jack is really John's son. This one I'm all in on, and another reason I really love this one is just it fleshes out the character and who John Marston is as a person. Arthur Morgan saw it in him as we went through the events of Red Dead Redemption 2. He saw that John was a good man and encouraged him to get out of this life and to take care of his family. And that's exactly what he did. Whether or not Jack is biologically his, that's his son because he has chosen to take care of Abigail as well as Jack. But also, how good are Red Dead Redemption 1 and 2? I need to go back and replay those. I like intermittently go back into Red Dead Redemption 2, uninstall it, reinstall it, play it for another few hours. So um, I think I should do that again very soon. Let's move into the last one here, guys. And this one is about Jumanji. If you guys didn't guess which game it was based off of the hint I gave earlier on. And this is back in the Reddit fan theories page. This user has now deleted their account, so I'm not sure who put this on here. But it states that Jumanji is a Dybbuk box. Now, this one spoke to me immediately as a huge fan of the paranormal. I know Amity Phil Horror has kind of gone away for now. I'm you know, hoping, obviously, to bring it back for October, making, maybe making it like an annual thing as, as opposed to a monthly or bi-monthly thing. It's just tough to research those topics on a monthly and bi-monthly basis. But this one obviously caught my eye because of its ties to the paranormal. In Jewish folklore, a dibbuk is a malevolent, possessing spirit. The word dibbuk itself means to cling. Dibbuk are supposed to especially hate children and do their worst to possess or kill them. But like most demons, the Dybbuk has a weakness for games and challenges. They are generally said to be trapped by a rabbi or holy person in a box or a cabinet called a Dybbuk box. My theory is that Jumanji itself is a very powerful Dybbuk trapped inside this box that manipulates children, its preferred prey, into challenging it. 
I mean, we only see a handful of kids that succeed in the game. How many failed and were consumed by the game? It changes form depending on the time and who's playing it. At the beginning of the first Jumanji film, two brothers in the 1860s are burying the chest containing the game, but who knows if it was in the form of a board game at all when they hit it. And in the recent Jumanji sequel, it becomes a video game to draw in the 21st century geek and his delinquent friends. And think of the name, Jumanji. It may sound like exotic gibberish, but think of this. In French, Jumanjere means I will consume. What if Jumanji was originally that and changed to satisfy Alan's desire for an adventure and a way to get out of his life? This one is super simple, and I love it. I'm not sure how long board games have been around, but again, it would make sense for it to adjust and adapt its form depending on what time period it's in. I'd probably say the kids in the more recent Jumanji, they're probably like borderline millennial slash Gen Z. I'd have to remember when those movies came out. I think it was like 2016, 2017. Kids that aren't necessarily playing board games as much anymore, but they'll definitely pop in, you know, a video game. Although at the same time, video games were around during the first Jumanji when that came out too. So, you know, none of these are perfect, but this one is definitely one of my favorites that I have come across again because of the ties to the paranormal. And also the original Jumanji is just one of my favorite films from my childhood that also still holds up today. That's pretty rare. So yeah, Jumanji, Dybbuk Box confirmed. I'm going to roll with it. But folks, that is it for this month's episode of Illuminati. I hope you enjoyed it. Some really, really strong contenders here. Which ones do you think are true? Which ones do you think are absolute nonsense? Definitely let me know over on social media. Find our social media in the Linktree link in the show notes. Also, make sure you're following us over on TikTok, which is where we've moved pretty much all of our film reviews. If you're looking for a review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, that is where it is. I'll be reviewing Fast 10 here very, very soon. And also, there's a lot of memes on there, which is most important. So definitely make sure you're following us over on the TikTok. Lots of really great episodes planned for the remainder of the month. Make sure you come back this Wednesday for this month's episode of Netflix and Phil, where I will be talking about the Apple TV film Ghosted, starring Chris Evans and Ana de Armas. And obviously, stay tuned for all the remainder of our content for the month of May. And don't forget to buy your tickets for Bold Matt Siri coming up in June. Folks, once again, I am Phil Smith, a.k.a. Phil the Filipino. And do not forget, we release new episodes every Monday and Wednesday. And all you got to do is wait for it. So, I heard you're looking for a go-to source for entertainment. Wait for it? Gaming? Wait for it? Anime? Plus Ultra! Mr. Eric Almighty and Phil the Filipino? Yeah, they've got you covered. And all you got to do is wait for it. This is the Wait For It Podcast.